Chapter One of the Story of My Boyhood and Youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of My Boyhood and Youth by John Muir. Chapter One A Boyhood in Scotland. Earliest Recollections. The Dandy Doctor Terror deeds of daring, the savagery of boys, school and fighting, birds nesting. When I was a boy in Scotland, I was fond of everything that was wild, and all my life I've been growing fonder and fonder of wild places and wild creatures. Fortunately, around my native town of Dunbar by the stormy North Sea, there was no lack of wildness, though most of the land lay in smooth cultivation with red-blooded playmates wild as myself i loved to wander in the fields to hear the birds sing and along the seashore to gaze and wonder at the shells and seaweeds eels and crabs in the pools among the rocks when the tide was low and best of all to watch the waves in awful storms thundering on the black headlands and craggy ruins of the old dunbar castle when the sea and the sky the waves and the clouds were mingled together as one. We never thought of playing truant, but after I was five or six years old, I ran away to the seashore or the fields almost every Saturday, and every day in the school vacations except Sundays, though solemnly warned that I must play at home in the garden and backyard, lest I should learn to think bad thoughts and say bad words. All in vain, in spite of the sure sore punishments that followed like shadows the natural inherited wildness in our blood ran true on its glorious course as invincible and unstoppable as stars my earliest recollections of the country were gained on short walks with my grandfather when i was perhaps not over three years old on one of these walks grandfather took me to lord lauderdale's gardens where I saw figs growing against a sunny wall, and tasted some of them, and got as many apples to eat as I wished. On another memorable walk in a hayfield, when we sat down to rest on one of the haycocks, I heard a sharp, prickly, stinging cry, and, jumping up eagerly, called Grandfather's attention to it. He said he heard only the wind, but I insisted on digging into the hay and turning it over, until we discovered the source of the strange, exciting sound. A mother field mouse, with half a dozen naked young, hanging to her teats. To me, this was a wonderful discovery. No hunter could have been more excited on discovering a bear and her cubs in a wilderness den. I was sent to school before I had completed my third year. The first school day was doubtless full of wonders, but I am not able to recall any of them. I remember the servant washing my face and getting soap in my eyes, and mother hanging a little green bag with my first book in it around my neck so I would not lose it, and it's blowing back in the sea wind like a flag. But before I was sent to school, my grandfather, as I was told, had taught me my letters from shop signs across the street. I can remember distinctly how proud I was when I had spelled my way through the little first book into the second which seemed large and important, and so on to the third. Going from one book to another formed a grand triumphal advancement, the memories of which still stand out in clear relief. The third book 
contained interesting stories as well as plain reading and spelling lessons. To me, the best story of all was Llewellyn's dog, the first animal that comes to mind after the needle-voiced field mouse. It so deeply interested and touched me and some of my classmates that we read it over and over with aching hearts, both in and out of school, and shed bitter tears over the brave, faithful dog Gellert, slain by his own master, who imagined that he had devoured his son because he came to him all bloody when the boy was lost, though he had saved the child's life by killing a big wolf. We have to look far back to learn how great may be the capacity of a child's heart for sorrow and sympathy with animals, as well as with human friends and neighbors. This old Lang Syne story stands out in the throng of old school-day memories as clearly as if I had myself been one of that Welsh hunting party, heard the bugles blowing, seen Gellert slain, joined in the search for the lost child, discovered it at last, happy and smiling among the grass and bushes beside the dead, mangled wolf, and wept with Llewellyn over the sad fate of his noble, faithful dog friend. Another favorite in this book was Southey's poem, The Inch Cape Bell, a story of a priest and a pirate. A good priest, in order to warn seamen in dark, stormy weather, hung a big bell on the dangerous Inch Cape Rock. The greater the storm and higher the waves, the louder rang the warning bell, until it was cut off and sunk by wicked Ralph the Rover. One fine day, as the story goes, when the bell was ringing gently, the pirate put out to the rock, saying, I'll sink that bell and plague the abbot of Aberbrothock. So he cut the rope, and down went the bell, with a gurgling sound, the bubbles rose and burst around, etc. Then Ralph the rover sailed away, he scoured the seas for many a day, and now, grown rich with plundered store, he steers his course for Scotland's shore. Then came a terrible storm with cloud darkness and night darkness and high roaring waves. Now where we are, cried the pirate, I cannot tell, but I wish I could hear the Inchcape bell. And the story goes on to tell how the wretched rover tore his hair and cursed himself in his despair, when, with a shivering shock, the stout ship struck on the Inchcape rock, and went down with Ralph and his plunder beside the good priest's bell. The story appealed to our love of kind deeds and of wildness and fair play. A lot of terrifying experiences connected with these first school days grew out of crimes committed by the keeper of a low lodging house in Edinburgh, who allowed poor homeless wretches to sleep on benches or the floor for a penny or so a night, and, when kind death came to their relief, sold the bodies for dissection to Dr. Hare of the medical school. None of us children ever heard anything like the original story. The servant girls told us that dandy doctors, clad in long black cloaks and supplied with a store of sticking plaster of wondrous adhesiveness, prowled at night about the country lanes and even the town streets, watching for children to choke and sell. The dandy doctor's business method, as the servants explained it, was with lightning quickness to clap a sticking plaster on the face of a scholar covering mouth and nose, preventing breathing or crying for help, then pop us under his long black cloak and carry us to Edinburgh to be sold and sliced into small pieces for folk to learn how we were made. We always mentioned the name Dandy Doctor 
in a fearful whisper, and never dared venture out of doors after dark. In the short winter days it got dark before school closed, and in cloudy weather we sometimes had difficulty in finding our way home unless a servant with a lantern was sent for us. But during the dandy doctor period the school was closed earlier, for if detained until the usual hour the teacher could not get us to leave the schoolroom. We would rather stay all night, supperless, than dare the mysterious doctors supposed to be lying in wait for us. We had to go up a hill called the Davel Bray that lay between the schoolhouse and the main street. One evening, just before dark, as we were running up the hill, one of the boys shouted, A dandy doctor! A dandy doctor! And we all fled, pell-mell, back into the schoolhouse to the astonishment of Mungo Siddons, the teacher. I can remember to this day the amused look on the good dominie's face as he stared and tried to guess what had got into us, until one of the older boys breathlessly explained that there was an awful big dandy doctor on the bray, and we couldn't go home. Others corroborated the dreadful news. Yes, we saw him, plain as anything, with his long black cloak to hide us in, and some of us thought we saw a stickin' plaster ready in his hand. We were in such a state of fear and trembling that the teacher saw he wasn't going to get rid of us without going himself as leader. He went only a short distance, however, and turned us over to the care of the two biggest scholars, who led us to the top of the bray, and then left us to scurry home and dash into the door like pursued squirrels diving into their holes. Just before school scaled, closed, we all arose and sang the fine hymn, Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing. In the spring, when the swallows were coming back from their winter homes, we sang, Welcome, welcome, little stranger, welcome from a foreign shore, safe escape from many a danger. And, while singing, we all swayed in rhythm with the music. The cuckoo, that always told his name in the spring of the year, was another favorite song, and when there was nothing in particular to call to mind any special bird or animal, the songs we sang were widely varied, such as, the whale, the whale is the beast for me, plunging along through the deep, deep sea. But best of all was, Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing, though at that time the most significant part, I fear, was the first three words. With my school lessons, Father made me learn hymns and Bible verses. For learning Rock of Ages, he gave me a penny, and I thus became suddenly rich. Scotch boys are seldom spoiled with money. We thought more of a penny those economical days than the poorest American schoolboy thinks of a dollar. To decide what to do with that first penny was an extravagantly serious affair. I ran in great excitement up and down the street, examining the tempting goodies in the shop windows before venturing on so important an investment. My playmates also became excited when the wonderful news got abroad that Johnny Muir had a penny, hoping to obtain a taste of the orange, apple, or candy it was likely to bring forth. At this time, infants were baptized and vaccinated a few days after birth. I remember very well a fight with the doctor when my brother David was vaccinated. This happened, I think, before I was sent to school. I couldn't imagine what the doctor, a tall, severe-looking man in black, was doing to my brother, but as mother, who was holding him in her arms, offered no objection, I looked on quietly, 
while he scratched the arm until I saw blood. Then, unable to trust even my mother, I managed to spring up high enough to grab and bite the doctor's arm, yelling that I wasn't going to let him hurt my bonny brither, while to my utter astonishment mother and the doctor only laughed at me. So far from complete at times is sympathy between parents and children, and so much like wild beasts are baby boys, little fighting, biting, climbing pagans. Father was proud of his garden, and seemed always to be trying to make it as much like Eden as possible, and in a corner of it he gave each of us a little bit of ground for our very own, in which we planted what we best liked, wondering how the hard, dry seeds could change into soft leaves and flowers, and find their way out to the light, and to see how they were coming on we used to dig up the larger ones, such as peas and beans, every day. My aunt had a corner assigned to her in our garden, which she filled with lilies, and we all looked with the utmost respect and admiration at that precious lily bed, and wondered whether, when we grew up, we should ever be rich enough to own one anything like so grand. We imagined that each lily was worth an enormous sum of money, and never dared to touch a single leaf or petal of them. We really stood in awe of them. Far, far was I then from the wild lily gardens of California that I was destined to see in their glory. When I was a little boy at Mungo Siddons School, a flower show was held in Dunbar, and I saw a number of the exhibitors carrying large handfuls of dahlias, the first I had ever seen. I thought them marvelous in size and beauty, and, as in the case of my aunt's lilies, wondered if I should ever be rich enough to own some of them. Although I never dared to touch my aunt's sacred lilies, I have good cause to remember stealing some common flowers from an apothecary, Peter Lawson, who also answered the purpose of a regular physician to most of the poor people of the town and adjacent country. He had a pony which was considered very wild and dangerous, and when he was called out of town he mounted this wonderful beast, which, after standing long in the stable, was frisky and boisterous, and often to our delight reared and jumped and danced about from side to side of the street before he could be persuaded to go ahead. We boys gazed in awful admiration and wondered how the druggist could be so brave and able as to get on and stay on that wild beast's back. This famous Peter loved flowers and had a fine garden surrounded by an iron fence, through the bars of which, when I thought no one saw me, I oftentimes snatched a flower and took to my heels. One day Peter discovered me in this mischief, dashed out into the street and caught me. I screamed that I wouldn't steal any more if he would let me go. He didn't say anything, but just dragged me along to the stable, where he kept the wild pony, pushed me in right back of its heels, and shut the door. I was screaming, of course, but as soon as I was imprisoned, the fear of being kicked quenched all noise. I hardly dared breathe. My only hope was in motionless silence. Imagine the agony I endured. I did not steal any more of his flowers. He was a good, hard judge of boy nature. I was in Peter's hands some time before this, when I was about two and a half years old. The servant girl bathed us small folk before putting us to bed, the smarting, soapy scrubbings of the Saturday nights in preparation for the Sabbath were particularly severe, 
and we all dreaded them. My sister Sarah, the next older than me, wanted the long-legged stool I was sitting on awaiting my turn, so she just tipped me off. My chin struck on the edge of the bathtub, and as I was talking at the time, my tongue happened to be in the way of my teeth when they were closed by the blow, and a deep gash was cut on the side of it, which bled profusely. Mother came running at the noise I made, wrapped me up, put me in the servant girl's arms, and told her to run with me through the garden and out by a back way to Peter Lawson to have something done to stop the bleeding. He simply pushed a wad of cotton into my mouth after soaking it in some brown, astringent stuff, and told me to be sure to keep my mouth shut, and all would soon be well. Mother put me to bed, calmed my fears, and told me to lie still and sleep like a good bairn. But just as I was dropping off to sleep, I swallowed the bulky wad of medicated cotton, and with it, as I imagined, my tongue also. My screams over so great a loss brought mother, and when she anxiously took me in her arms and inquired what was the matter, I told her that I had swallowed my tongue. She only laughed at me, much to my astonishment, when I expected that she would bewail the awful loss her boy had sustained. My sisters, who were older than I, oftentimes said, when I happened to be talking too much, "'It's a pity you hadn't swallowed at least half of that long tongue of yours when you were little.' It appears natural for children to be fond of water, although the Scotch method of making every duty dismal contrived to make necessary bathing for health terrible to us. I well remember among the awful experiences of childhood being taken by the servant to the seashore when I was between two and three years old, stripped at the side of a deep pool in the rocks, plunged into it among crawling crawfish and slippery, wriggling, snake-like eels, and drawn up gasping and shrieking, only to be plunged down again and again. As the time approached for this terrible bathing, I used to hide in the darkest corners of the house, and oftentimes a long search was required to find me. But after we were a few years older, we enjoyed bathing with other boys as we wandered along the shore, careful, however, not to get into a pool that had an invisible boy-devouring monster at the bottom of it. Such pools, miniature maelstroms, were called sukun in goats, and were well known to most of us. Nevertheless, we never ventured into any pool on strange parts of the coast before we had thrust a stick into it. If the stick were not pulled out of our hands, we boldly entered, and enjoyed plashing and ducking long ere we had learned to swim. One of our best playgrounds was the famous old Dunbar Castle, to which King Edward fled after his defeat at Bannockburn. It was built more than a thousand years ago, and though we know little of its history, we had heard many mysterious stories of the battles fought about its walls, and firmly believed that every bone we found in the ruins belonged to an ancient warrior. We tried to see who could climb highest on the crumbling peaks and crags, and took chances that no cautious mountaineer would try. That I did not fall and finish my rock scrambling in those adventurous boyhood days seems now a reasonable wonder. Among our best games were running, jumping, wrestling, and scrambling. I was so proud of my skill as a climber that when I first heard of hell from a servant girl who loved to tell its horrors and warn us that if we did anything wrong we would be cast into it, I always insisted that I could climb out of it. I imagined it was only a sooty pit with stone walls like those of the castle, 
and I felt sure there must be chinks and cracks in the masonry for fingers and toes. Anyhow, the terrors of the horrible place seldom lasted long beyond the telling, for natural faith casts out fear. Most of the Scotch children believe in ghosts, and some, under peculiar conditions, continue to believe in them all through life. Grave ghosts are deemed particularly dangerous, and many of the most credulous will go far out of their way to avoid passing through or near a graveyard in the dark. After being instructed by the servants in the nature, looks, and habits of the various black and white ghosts, boo-wuzzies, and witches, we often speculated as to whether they could run fast, and tried to believe that we had a good chance to get away from most of them. To improve our speed and wind, we often took long runs into the country. Tam O'Shanter's mare outran a lot of witches, at least until she reached a place of safety beyond the keystone of the bridge, and we thought perhaps we also might be able to outrun them. Our house formerly belonged to a physician, and a servant girl told us that the ghost of the dead doctor haunted one of the unoccupied rooms in the second story that was kept dark on account of a heavy window tax. Our bedroom was adjacent to the ghost room, which had in it a lot of chemical apparatus, glass tubing, glass and brass retorts, test tubes, flasks, etc., and we thought that those strange articles were still used by the old dead doctor in compounding physic. In the long summer days, David and I were put to bed several hours before sunset. Mother tucked us in carefully, drew the curtains of the big old-fashioned bed, and told us to lie still and sleep like good bairns. But we were usually out of bed playing games of daring called scoochers about as soon as our loving mother reached the foot of the stairs, for we couldn't lie still, however hard we might try. Going into the ghost room was regarded as a very great scoocher, after venturing in a few steps and rushing back in terror, I used to dare David to go as far without getting caught. The roof of our house, as well as the crags and walls of the old castle, offered fine mountaineering exercise. Our bedroom was lighted by a dormer window. One night I opened it in search of good scoochers and hung myself out over the slates, holding on to the sill, while the wind was making a balloon of my nightgown. I then dared David to try the adventure, and he did. Then I went out again and hung by one hand, and David did the same. Then I hung by one finger, being careful not to slip, and he did that too. Then I stood on the sill and examined the edge of the left wall of the window, crept up the slates along its side by slight finger holds, got astride of the roof, sat there a few minutes looking at the scenery over the garden wall, while the wind was howling and threatening to blow me off, then managed to slip down, catch hold of the sill, and get safely back into the room. But before attempting this scoocher, recognizing its dangerous character with commendable caution, I warned David that in case I should happen to slip, I would grip the rain trough when I was going over the eaves and hang on, and that he must then run fast downstairs and tell father to get a ladder for me, and tell him to be quick because I would soon be tired hanging dangling in the wind by my hands. After my return from this capital scoocher, David, not to be outdone, crawled up to the top of the window roof and got bravely astride of it. But in trying to return he lost courage and began to greet, to cry, I cannot get down, I cannot get down. 
I leaned out of the window and shouted encouragingly, Dinner greet, dinner greet, I'll help you down. If you greet, father will hear, and he'll give us an awful scalping. Then, standing on the sill and holding on by one hand to the window casing, I directed him to slip his feet down within reach, and, after securing a good hold, I jumped inside and dragged him in by his heels. This finished Scoocher scrambling for the night and frightened us into bed. In the short winter days, when it was dark even at our early bedtime, we usually spent the hours before going to sleep playing voyages around the world under the bedclothing. After Mother had carefully covered us, bade us good night, and gone downstairs, we set out on our travels. Burrowing like moles, we visited France, India, America, Australia, New Zealand, and all the places we had ever heard of, our travels never ending until we fell asleep. When Mother came to take a last look at us before she went to bed, to see that we were covered, we were oftentimes covered so well that she had difficulty in finding us, for we were hidden in all sorts of positions where sleep happened to overtake us. But in the morning we always found ourselves in good order, lying straight, like good barons, as she said. Some fifty years later, when I visited Scotland, I got one of my Dunbar schoolmates to introduce me to the owners of our old home, from whom I obtained permission to go upstairs to examine our bedroom window and judge what sort of adventure getting on its roof must have been. And with all my after-experience in mountaineering, I found that what I had done in daring boyhood was now beyond my skill. Boys are often at once cruel and merciful, thoughtlessly hard-hearted and tender-hearted, sympathetic, pitiful, and kind in ever-changing contrasts. Love of neighbors, human or animal, grows up amid savage traits, coarse and fine. When father made out to get us securely locked up in the back yard to prevent our shore and field wanderings, we had to play away the comparatively dull time as best we could. One of our amusements was hunting cats without seriously hurting them. These sagacious animals knew, however, that, though not very dangerous, boys were not to be trusted. One time in particular, I remember, when we began throwing stones at an experienced old Tom, not wishing to hurt him much, though he was a tempting mark. He soon saw what we were up to, fled to the stable, and climbed to the top of the haymanger, he was still within range, however, and we kept the stones flying faster and faster, but he just blinked and played possum without wincing either at our best shots or at the noise we made. I happened to strike him pretty hard with a good-sized pebble, but he still blinked and sat still as if without feeling. He must be mortally wounded, I said, and now we must kill him to put him out of pain, the savage in us rapidly growing with indulgence. All took heartily to this sort of cat mercy, and began throwing the heaviest stones we could manage. But that old fellow knew what characters we were, and just as we imagined him mercifully dead, he evidently thought the play was becoming too serious, and that it was time to retreat. For suddenly, with a wild whirr and gurr of energy, he launched himself over our heads, rushed across the yard in a blur of speed, climbed to the roof of another building and over the garden wall, out of pain and bad company, with all his lives wide awake and in good working order. After we had thus learned that Tom had at least nine lives, we tried to verify the common saying that no matter how far cats fell, they always landed on their feet unhurt. We caught one in our backyard, not Tom, but a smaller one of manageable size, and somehow got him smuggled up to the top story of the house. 
I don't know how in the world we managed to let go of him, for as soon as we opened the window and held him over the sill, he knew his danger and made violent efforts to scratch and bite his way back into the room. But we determined to carry the thing through and at last managed to drop him. I can remember to this day how the poor creature in danger of his life strained and balanced as he was falling and managed to alight on his feet. This was a cruel thing for even wild boys to do, and we never tried the experiment again, for we sincerely pitied the poor fellow when we saw him creeping slowly away, stunned and frightened, with a swollen black and blue chin. Again, showing the natural savagery of boys, we delighted in dog-fights, and even in the horrid red work of slaughter-houses, often running long distances and climbing over walls and roofs to see a pig killed, as soon as we heard the desperately earnest squealing. And if the butcher was good-natured, we begged him to let us get a near view of the mysterious insides and to give us a bladder to blow up for a football. But here is an illustration of the better side of boy nature. In our backyard there were three elm trees, and in the one nearest the house a pair of robin redbreasts had their nest. When the young were almost able to fly a troop of the celebrated Scottish greys, visited Dunbar, and three or four of the fine horses were lodged in our stable. When the soldiers were polishing their swords and helmets, they happened to notice the nest, and just as they were leaving, one of them climbed the tree and robbed it. With sore sympathy we watched the young birds as the hard-hearted robber pushed them one by one beneath his jacket, all but two that jumped out of the nest and tried to fly. But they were easily caught as they fluttered on the ground and were hidden away with the rest. The distress of the bereaved parents as they hovered and screamed over the frightened, crying children they so long had loved and sheltered and fed was pitiful to see. But the shining soldier rolled grandly away on his big gray horse, caring only for the few pennies the young songbirds would bring and the beer they would buy, while we all, sisters and brothers, were crying and sobbing. I remember, as if it happened this day, how my heart fairly ached and choked me, Mother put us to bed and tried to comfort us, telling us that the little birds would be well-fed and grow big and soon learn to sing in pretty cages. But again and again we rehearsed the sad story of the poor bereaved birds and their frightened children and could not be comforted. Father came into the room when we were half asleep and still sobbing, and I heard Mother telling him that, ah, the bairn's hearts were broken over the robbing of the nest in the elm. After attaining the manly, belligerent age of five or six years, very few of my school days passed without a fist-fight, and half a dozen was no uncommon number. When any classmate of our own age questioned our rank and standing as fighters, we always made haste to settle the matter at a quiet place on the Davel Bray. To be a good fighter was our highest ambition, our dearest aim in life, in or out of school. To be a good scholar was a secondary consideration though we tried hard to hold high places in our classes and gloried in being ducks. We fairly reveled in the battle stories of glorious William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, with which every breath of Scotch air is saturated, and, of course, we were all going to be soldiers. On the Dobblebray battleground we often managed to bring on something like real war, greatly more exciting than personal combat. Choosing leaders, we divided into two armies— in winter, damp snow furnished plenty of ammunition to make the thing serious, and in summer, sand and grass sods. Cheering and shouting some battle cry such as, 
Bannockburn, Bannockburn, Scotland forever, the last war in India. We were led bravely on. For heavy battery work, we stuffed our Scotch blue bonnets with snow and sand, sometimes mixed with gravel, and fired them at each other as cannonballs. Of course, we always looked eagerly forward to vacation days and thought them slow in coming. Old Mungo Siddons gave us a lot of gooseberries or currants and wished us a happy time. Some sort of special closing exercises, singing, recitations, etc., celebrated the great day, but I remember only the berries, freedom from schoolwork, and opportunities for running away rambles in the fields and along the wave-beaten seashore. An exciting time came when at the age of seven or eight years I left the old Dabblebray school for the grammar school. Of course, I had a terrible lot of fighting to do, because a new scholar had to meet every one of his age who dared to challenge him, this being the common introduction to a new school. It was very strenuous for the first month or so, establishing my fighting rank, taking up new studies, especially Latin and French, getting acquainted with new classmates and the master and his rules. In the first few Latin and French lessons, the new teacher, Mr. Lyon, blandly smiled at our comical blunders, but pedagogical weather of the severest kind quickly set in, when for every mistake, everything short of perfection, the taws was promptly applied. We had to get three lessons every day in Latin, three in French, and as many in English, besides spelling, history, arithmetic, and geography. Word lessons in particular, the wouldst, couldst, shouldst, have loved kind, were kept up with much warlike thrashing until I had committed the whole of the French, Latin, and English grammars to memory, and in connection with reading lessons we were called on to recite parts of them with the rules over and over again, as if all the regular and irregular, incomprehensible verb stuff was poetry. In addition to all this, Father made me learn so many Bible verses every day that by the time I was eleven years of age I had about three-fourths of the Old Testament and all of the New by heart and by sore flesh. I could recite the New Testament from the beginning of Matthew to the end of Revelation without a single stop. The dangers of cramming and of making scholars study at home instead of letting their little brains rest were never heard of in those days. We carried our school books home in a strap every night and committed to memory our next day's lessons before we went to bed, and to do that we had to bend our attention as closely on our tasks as lawyers on great million-dollar cases. I can't conceive of anything that would now enable me to concentrate my attention more fully than when I was a mere stripling boy, and it was all done by whipping, thrashing in general. Old-fashioned Scotch teachers spent no time in seeking short roads to knowledge or in trying any of the new-fangled psychological methods so much in vogue nowadays. There was nothing said about making the seats easy or the lessons easy. We were simply driven point-blank against our books like soldiers against the enemy and sternly ordered up and at em. commit your lessons to memory. 
If we failed in any part, however slight, we were whipped, for the grand, simple, all-sufficing Scotch discovery had been made that there was a close connection between the skin and the memory, and that irritating the skin excited the memory to any required degree. Fighting was carried on still more vigorously in the high school than in the common school. Whenever any one was challenged, either the challenge was allowed or it was decided by a battle on the seashore, where with stubborn enthusiasm we battered each other as if we had not been sufficiently battered by the teacher. When we were so fortunate as to finish a fight without getting a black eye, we usually escaped a thrashing at home and another next morning at school, for other traces of the fray could be easily washed off at a well on the church bray, or concealed, or passed as results of playground accidents, but a black eye could never be explained away from downright fighting. A good double thrashing was the inevitable penalty, but all without avail. Fighting went on without the slightest abatement, like natural storms, for no punishment less than death could quench the ancient inherited belligerence burning in our pagan blood. Nor could we be made to believe it was fair that father and teacher should thrash us so industriously for our good, while begrudging us the pleasure of thrashing each other for our good. All these various thrashings, however, were admirably influential in developing not only memory but fortitude as well. For if we did not endure our school punishments and fighting pains without flinching and making faces, we were mocked on the playground, and public opinion on a Scotch playground was a powerful agent in controlling behavior. Therefore we at length managed to keep our features in smooth repose while enduring pain that would try anybody but an American Indian. Far from feeling that we were called on to endure too much pain, one of our playground games was thrashing each other with whips about two feet long made from the tough, wiry stems of a species of polygonum fastened together in a stiff, firm braid. One of us handing two of these whips to a companion to take his choice, we stood up close together and thrashed each other on the legs until one succumbed to the intolerable pain and thus lost the game. Nearly all of our playground games were strenuous, shin-battering shinny, wrestling, prisoner's base, and dogs and hares, all augmenting in no slight degree our lessons in fortitude. Moreover, we regarded our punishments and pains of every sort as training for war, since we were all going to be soldiers. Besides single combats, we sometimes assembled on Saturdays to meet the scholars of another school and very little was required for the growth of strained relations and war. The immediate cause might be nothing more than a saucy stare. Perhaps the scholar stared at would insolently inquire, What are you glowering at, Bob? Bob would reply, I'll look where I have mind, and hinder me if you dare. Well, Bob, the outraged, stared-at scholar would reply, I'll soon let ye see whether I dare or no and give Bob a blow on the face. This opened the battle, and every good scholar belonging to either school was drawn into it. After both sides were sore and weary, a strong-lunged warrior would be heard above the din of battle, shouting, I'll tell ye what we do with ye. If ye let us alone, we'll let ye alone. 
and the school war ended as most wars between nations do and some of them begin in much the same way notwithstanding the great number of harshly enforced rules not very good order was kept in school in my time there were two schools within a few rods of each other one for mathematics navigation etc the other called the grammar school that i attended the masters lived in a big freestone house within eight or ten yards of the schools so that they could easily step out for anything they wanted or send one of the scholars the moment our master disappeared perhaps for a book or a drink every scholar left his seat and his lessons jumped on top of the benches and desks or crawled beneath them tugging rolling wrestling accomplishing in a minute a depth of disorder and din unbelievable save by a scottish scholar we even carried on war class against class in those wild precious minutes a watcher gave the alarm when the master opened his house door to return and it was a great feat to get into our places before he entered adorned in awful majestic authority shouting silence and striking resounding blows with his cane on a desk or on some unfortunate scholar's back forty-seven years after leaving this fighting school i returned on a visit to scotland and a cousin in dunbar introduced me to a minister who was acquainted with the history of the school and obtained for me an invitation to dine with the new master of course i gladly accepted for i wanted to see the old place of fun and pain and the battleground on the sands mr lyon our able teacher and thrasher i learned had held his place as master of the school for twenty or thirty years after i left it and had recently died in london after preparing many young men for the english universities at the dinner-table while i was recalling the amusements and fights of my old school days the minister remarked to the new master now don't you wish that you had been teacher in those days and gained the honor of walloping john muir this pleasure so merrily suggested showed that the minister also had been a fighter in his youth the old freestone school building was still perfectly sound but the carved ink-stained desks were almost whittled away the highest part of our playground back of the school commanded a view of the sea and we loved to watch the passing ships and judging by their rigging make guesses as to the ports they had sailed from those to which they were bound what they were loaded with their tonnage etc in stormy weather they were all smothered in clouds and spray and showers of salt scud torn from the tops of the waves came flying over the playground wall in those tremendous storms many a brave ship foundered or was tossed and smashed on the rocky shore when a wreck occurred within a mile or two of the town we often managed by running fast to reach it and pick up some of the spoils in particular i remember visiting the battered fragments of an unfortunate brig or schooner that had been loaded with apples and finding fine unpitiful sport in rushing into the spent waves and picking up the red-cheeked fruit from the frothy seething foam all our school books were extravagantly illustrated with drawings of every kind of sailing vessel and every boy owned some sort of craft whittled from a block of wood and trimmed with infinite pains sloops schooners brigs and full-rigged ships with their sails and string ropes properly adjusted and named for us by some old sailor 
these precious toy craft with lead keels we learned to sail on a pond near the town with the sails set at the proper angle to the wind they made fast straight voyages across the pond to boys on the other side who readjusted the sails and started them back on the return voyages oftentimes fleets of half a dozen or more were started together in exciting races our most exciting sport however was playing with gunpowder we made guns out of gas pipe mounted them on sticks of any shape clubbed our pennies together for powder gleaned pieces of lead here and there and cut them into slugs and while one aimed another applied a match to the touch hole with these awful weapons we wandered along the beach and fired at the gulls and solan geese as they passed us fortunately we never hurt any of them that we knew of we also dug holes in the ground put in a handful or two of powder tamped it well around a fuse made of a wheat stalk and reaching cautiously forward touched a match to the straw this we called making earthquakes oft times we went home with singed hair and faces well peppered with powder grains that could not be washed out then of course came a correspondingly severe punishment from both father and teacher another favorite sport was climbing trees and scaling garden walls boys eight or ten years of age could get over almost any wall by standing on each other's shoulders thus making living ladders to make walls secure against marauders many of them were finished on top with broken bottles embedded in lime leaving the cutting edges sticking up but with bunches of grass and weeds we could sit or stand in comfort on top of the jaggedest of them like squirrels that begin to eat nuts before they are ripe we began to eat apples about as soon as they were formed causing of course desperate gastric disturbances to be cured by castor oil serious were the risks we ran in climbing and squeezing through hedges and of course among the country folk we were far from welcome farmers passing us on the roads often shouted by way of greeting oh you vagabonds back to the town with ye gang back where ye belong you're up to mischief i's warrant i can see it the gamekeeper'll catch ye and most like ye'll be hanged some day breakfast in those old langsyne days was simple oatmeal porridge usually with a little milk or treacle served in wooden dishes called luggies formed of staves hooped together like miniature tubs about four or five inches in diameter one of the staves the lug or ear a few inches longer than the others served as a handle while the number of luggies ranged in a row on a dresser indicated the size of the family we never dreamed of anything to come after the porridge or of asking for more our portions were consumed in about a couple of minutes then off to school at noon we came racing home ravenously hungry the midday meal called dinner was usually vegetable broth a small piece of boiled mutton and barley meal scone none of us liked the barley scone bread therefore we got all we wanted of it and in desperation had to eat it for we were always hungry about as hungry after as before meals the evening meal was called tea and was served on our return from school it consisted as far as we children were concerned of half a slice of white bread without butter barley scone and warm water with a little milk and sugar in it a beverage called content which warmed but neither cheered nor inebriated immediately after tea we ran across the street with our books to grandfather gilry 
who took pleasure in seeing us and hearing us recite our next day's lessons. Then back home to supper, usually a boiled potato and piece of barley scone. Then family worship and to bed. Our amusements on Saturday afternoons and vacations depended mostly on getting away from home into the country, especially in the spring when the birds were calling loudest. Father sternly forbade David and me from playing truant in the fields with plundering wanderers like ourselves, fearing we might go on from bad to worse, get hurt in climbing over walls, caught by gamekeepers, or lost by falling over a cliff into the sea. Play as much as you like in the backyard and garden, he said, and mind what you'll get when you forget and disobey. Thus he warned us with an awfully stern countenance, looking very hard-hearted, while naturally his heart was far from hard, though he devoutly believed in eternal punishment for bad boys both here and hereafter. Nevertheless, like devout martyrs of wildness, we stole away to the seashore or the green sunny fields with almost religious regularity, taking advantage of opportunities when father was very busy to join our companions, oftenest to hear the birds sing and hunt their nests, glorying in the number we had discovered and called our own. A sample of our nest chatter was something like this. Willie Chisholm would proudly exclaim, I can, no, seventeen nests, and you, Johnny, can only fifteen. But I wouldn't give my fifteen for your seventeen, for five of mine are larks and mavises. You can only three of the best singers. Yes, Johnny, but I can six goldies, and you can only one. Most of yours are only sparrows and linties and robin redbreasts. Then perhaps Bob Richardson would loudly declare that he kenned more nests than anybody, for he kenned twenty-three, with about fifty eggs in them, and more than fifty young birds, maybe a hundred, some of them nothing but raw gorblings, but lots of them as big as their mithers and ready to flee, and about fifty crow's nests and three fox dens. Oh, yes, Bob, but that's no fair, for nobody counts crow's nests and foxholes, and then you live in the country at Bellhaven where ye have the best chance. Yes, but I ken a lot of bumbies' nests, both the red-legged and the yellow-legged kind. Oh, what cares for bumbies' nests? Well, but here's something. My father let me gang to a fox hunt. And, man, it was grand to see the hounds and the long-legged horses lopin' the dikes and burns and hedges. The nests, I fear, with the beautiful eggs and young birds, were prized quite as highly as the songs of the glad parents. But no Scotch boy that I know of ever failed to listen with enthusiasm to the songs of the skylarks. Oftentimes on a broad meadow near Dunbar we stood for hours enjoying their marvelous singing and soaring. From the grass where the nest was hidden, the male would suddenly rise, as straight as if shot up, to a height of perhaps thirty or forty feet, and, sustaining himself with rapid wing-beats, pour down the most delicious melody, sweet and clear and strong, overflowing all bounds. Then suddenly he would soar higher again and again, ever higher and higher, soaring and singing until lost to sight even on perfectly clear days, 
and oftentimes in cloudy weather far in the downy cloud, as the poet says. To test our eyes we often watched a lark until he seemed a faint speck in the sky, and finally passed beyond the keenest sighted of us all. I see him yet, we would cry. I see him yet, I see him yet, I see him yet, as he soared. And finally only one of us would be left to claim that he still saw him. At last he too would have to admit that the singer had soared beyond his sight, and still the music came pouring down to us in glorious profusion from a height far above our vision, requiring marvelous power of wing and marvelous power of voice, for that rich, delicious, soft, and yet clear music was distinctly heard long after the bird was out of sight. Then, suddenly ceasing, the glorious singer would appear, falling like a bolt straight down to his nest where his mate was sitting on the eggs. It was far too common a practice among us to carry off a young lark just before it could fly, place it in a cage, and fondly, laboriously feed it. Sometimes we succeeded in keeping one alive for a year or two, and when awakened by the spring weather it was pitiful to see the quivering, imprisoned soarer of the heavens rapidly beating its wings and singing as though it were flying and hovering in the air like its parents. To keep it in health we were taught that we must supply it with a sod of grass the size of the bottom of the cage, to make the poor bird feel as though it were at home on its native meadow, a meadow perhaps a foot or at most two feet square. Again and again it would try to hover over that miniature meadow from its miniature sky just underneath the top of the cage. At last, conscience-stricken, we carried the beloved prisoner to the meadow west of Dunbar where it was born, and, blessing its sweet heart, bravely set it free, and our exceeding great reward was to see it fly and sing in the sky. In the winter, when there was but little doing in the fields, we organized running matches. A dozen or so of us would start out on races that were simply tests of endurance, running on and on along a public road over the breezy hills like hounds without stopping or getting tired. The only serious trouble we ever felt in these long races was an occasional stitch in our sides. One of the boys started the story that sucking raw eggs was a sure cure for the stitches. We had hens in our backyard, and on the next Saturday we managed to swallow a couple of eggs apiece, a disgusting job, but we would do almost anything to mend our speed. And as soon as we could get away after taking the cure, we set out on a ten or twenty mile run to prove its worth. We thought nothing of running right ahead ten or a dozen miles before turning back, for we knew nothing about taking time by the sun, and none of us had a watch in those days. Indeed, we never cared about time until it began to get dark. Then we thought of home and the thrashing that awaited us. Late or early the thrashing was sure, unless father happened to be away. If he was expected to return soon, mother made haste to get us to bed before his arrival. We escaped the thrashing next morning, for father never felt like thrashing us in cold blood on the calm, holy Sabbath. But no punishment, however sure and severe, was of any avail against the attraction of the fields and woods. It had other uses, developing memory, etc., but in keeping us at home it was of no use at all. Wildness was ever sounding in our ears. 
and nature saw to it that besides school lessons and church lessons some of her own lessons should be learned perhaps with a view to the time when we should be called to wander in wildness to our heart's content oh the blessed enchantment of those saturday runaways in the prime of the spring how our young wandering eyes reveled in the sunny breezy glory of the hills and the sky every particle of us thrilling and tingling with the bees and glad birds and glad streams kings may be blessed we were glorious we were free school cares and scoldings heart thrashings and flesh thrashings alike were forgotten in the fullness of nature's glad wildness these were my first excursions the beginnings of lifelong wanderings End of chapter 1